Pop hated television, just like he hated rock and roll and egg creams and ugly stickers and anything else that I liked. In fact, he hated it so much that we didn't even have a television set. Every once in a while, I'd ask, please, couldn't we get one? He always said the same thing. Television was for mental defectives, and besides, he was damned if he was going to pay good money just so the National Association of Manufacturers could brainwash his son. My opinion was that it was a free country, and I ought to be allowed to get brainwashed if I wanted. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to the IMMP podcast for your dose of nostalgia, media criticism, and misuse of parental authority. My name is Matthew Porter. And I'm Ian Porter, his son. Yes, and I'm his dad. And uh, I make him watch television. And I make him watch movies. But sometimes, I make him read books. Ah, uh, yes. This is a new uh, a new territory for the uh, IMMP. The written word. My goodness. When we started this, my idea was really focused around television, and you had the idea, Ian, that why are we going to limit it to that? We should keep it open-ended, and that has allowed us to bring in movies, even if we see the movies on television, they're a different thing. But it also, this is a media analysis project, so it keeps us open to things like books. Yeah, there's so many other things that can influence someone, and if part of that is, part of this is you sharing stuff with me, part of it is me assessing what is different and what is the same about what you grew up with compared to my own upbringing, and books and such can be just as impactful, and I'm I'm glad that we're able to spread this out a little bit more, and there'll be other sources that are not just av and books certainly were really important to me when i was a kid i read uh, a lot of books i talked in a previous show about uh how much time i spent in the library where i grew up and at the time i was talking about the ufo books and the paranormal books and and things but that wasn't the beginning and the end of it no and and you are still very much a book person i say listeners this is an audio program but I'm going to just tell you that right now, I've got this framed look at my father with bookcases behind him and to the side of him. Full. I'm talking, there's a couple of books on their side in a few places, because they're part of a category. But we need to move stuff around to make that category bigger. And this is after, just a few months ago, uh, Mrs. Darling Wife and I went through and culled these bookshelves. To identify what we could donate, to identify what we would put away in the archive library, and to make sure that it was all in our, our computerized uh, library index. Yeah, so books are still definitely a thing. Yeah, and they absolutely were when I was a kid. And what we're going to talk about today is a book that, it was. it's another one of those things I haven't really thought about until recently. And I realize how important it was and how much of an influence it had on me. What what made you remember this? I really don't know. Maybe it's the fact that doing this podcast is bringing up lots of memories about what influenced me when I was a kid. And I can, I can definitely hear the influence, having read this book now. Well, the book we're going to talk about 
is The Teddy Bear Habit by James Lincoln Collier. Now, The Teddy Bear Habit is a book that, that I read probably when I was at just the right age. It was in the 1970s. I was probably about 11 years old, so maybe a year or so younger than this book's protagonist. But it is a cool book, and I've got to say, even reading it again as an adult decades later, I really enjoyed it. This this book definitely has a lot of voice to it, a lot more than I expected. It It is a book that has a a tone and is aware that it is all set from this main character's perspective inside their head. And that means that the perspective of a kid is so integral to how this story plays out. Yes. It is so character driven, extremely character driven. And there's something about that way. A kid remembers stuff. And I, 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 I started wanting to grab some of my psych books because there's bits of this about how he's processing information and how he's responding to stuff. It's obviously written by an adult much later, in part because I don't think any kid quite has this amount of snark as readily on hand <laughs> in some ways. Yes. But it's definitely someone remembering back to when they were a kid and writing with that memory in mind. Right. It's somebody who really understood what a kid's world is like and what a kid's thought process is like. And Collier has wrote a, a number of kids' books. Most of them were like historical fiction or, or nonfiction, I think he did some. Um, I don't know that he did that much of what was at the time contemporary fiction, but he just, his vo as you say, his voice, the way he describes this world fully from this character's point of view is, uh, is amazing. Welcome to another one of Ian's weird metaphors. <laughs> we need a little jingle to introduce. We, we that absolutely segment. do. This segment is going to become a, a, a regular thing. You ever seen those cartoons that are kind of jazz music, where all of the sketch lines are not cleaned up between animation frames, so the entire background, especially scenery, has this slight wiggle to it as the the shapes and the outlines are there in color but they're not clearly defined. Somehow the voice of this book is the literary equivalent to that. Where things are is said and stated, but it all has this flexibility based on the character's mood. It all has this urgency and this uncertainty to it because of what's going on around him. It had that same sort of effect to me as that that wiggly line jazz cartoon style. That's an interesting metaphor. I'm not sure that I completely get it. I'm not sure that it comports with my experience of this book, but I like it as a description of things. Thank you. To me, this, this world, and you know, the more I think about it, the more I like that metaphor, because the world is very, of this book is very, very real seeming and very concrete. And yet you only, of course, get the details that this character is focused on. And nobody has focus of, if, of quite the same type as a 12-year-old boy. And that he can be laser-focused on whatever's important to him, but that's going to change every 90 seconds. Oh, yeah. And it, it means that even before the, the actual story drama of this, 
there is definitely a constant underlying tension. There's this this baseline of oh goodness. I'm 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 getting old enough to be aware of the things around me in a way that makes me uncertain kind of young kid's mind. Right. So before we get too much farther into talking about it, maybe we should give a little capsule of, of what this book is about, but I'm not sure how well we'll be able to do this, but I want to see if we can make this a little bit less spoilery than our discussion of old TV shows and old movies tend to be. Because okay. I think that giving away some of the plot of, of old TV shows and old movies doesn't affect the ability to enjoy coming to that book and reading it in quite the same way that spoilers for the end of a book do. And I'm springing this on you now, so maybe we can discuss this and we can cut this discussion oh, no, out. I, th- we I think to. we can work with this. Or if we do have to have spoilers, we can kind of save them for the end and mark them out. Yeah. Tell people to go read the book and come back. In some ways, then, I think the first thing we have to do is classify what this story is. Right. And it is so bound up into its setting, also. Mm-hmm. I want to say this is a New York-based slice of life that slides mystery. I guess. It's a, it's a slice of a very particular and very peculiar kind of life. Absolutely. But you're right. It, it ultimately is a mystery. I mean, it's a life interesting enough to take a look at right. before something more dramatic happens in it. Yes, it could have been an interesting book just talking about this kid's life. And this kid that we're talking about is George Stable. And George Stable lives in Greenwich Village, New York. In I don't know that they ever give us a year, but you can clearly tell that it is late middle or early late 60s. The Beatles are a big deal, but they haven't yet broken up. That probably is the the best indicator we get as to when this took place. So it's, you know, think of it as 60s Greenwich Village, and that is a very, very particular kind of place. It's, it's, it's an overlap of cultures. You've, you've still got beatniks, but you've also got hippies, and you've got all kinds of weird characters, and this is just the world this kid inhabits. Greenwich Village, where I live, is what they call the Bohemian section of the city. A Bohemian section is where the artists hang out, Painters, writers, poets, composers, and so forth. Besides the artists and writers, there are usually a lot of weirdos in a bohemian section. In Greenwich Village, we have plenty of weirdos, and beatniks, and dope addicts, and various other kinds of nuts, like men who wear pirate scarves and beards and earrings, and women who paint their faces white and dress like little girls. According to Pop, that's the way it always is in bohemian sections. Any place you find artists, you find the screwballs. A lot of cities have bohemian sections, but Greenwich Village is the most famous of them. I'm not saying that just to brag about where I live. It's really true. The fact that this is so clearly set in New York is interesting. Because that meant that for me, it is a place I'm aware of and I recognize the names, but it's distant to me. And for you, that's that's a place you know. Right. And for me, something like 10 or 12 years after I read this book, I was going to school in that exact neighborhood, those <laughs> exact streets. Reading this again, I knew the, the place in crystal clarity the way I didn't when I first read the book. 
and that was that was an interesting experience. Yeah, I mean, if if this if this book was uh, same sort of story, but telling me, you know, how how far away from Auraria campus and the cash register building he was, I could probably have a clearer idea, because having that mental map, having that familiarity to begin with, would give me something to latch on to, and maybe those those lines would not be as wiggly to me in that sense. To go back to my metaphor. True, I was probably filling in gaps that the book didn't give us, just because I knew what was in you know, what what streets were near Bleecker Street and what was around Washington Square Park, because I had I'd gone to school there with a, a minor in record stores and bookstores. <laughs> it really does paint that uh, that place very well. Of course, it was a very different place when I went there. The world that this describes in Greenwich Village was already gone by the time I read the book. And it was long gone by the time uh, I actually spent time in that neighborhood in New York City. But there's still something that persists. It's still, at least it was when I when I spent time there and it wasn't quite as corporatized as it, I, I've noticed it is now when I go back. There's still something unique about that, that area, that part of Manhattan. It, it definitely feels like it... A- just in the descriptions here and from what you've told me, it's a point at which multiple areas intersect. Right, and it was it was the artsy bohemian part of town. And that factors very highly into this book, because George, he's not just a kid who lives in this, uh, this part of town. He is also a kid who's very musical, something that his father evidently you know, noticed when he was young. So this kid is taking and enjoying, it's for the most part, uh, voice lessons. He is also taking guitar lessons. But those are in secret. Right, because his father doesn't like this rock and roll stuff. So he's taking classical voice lessons with his father's blessing. He's taking guitar lessons on the side because he wants to learn how to play rock and roll. And his voice teacher is taking him out on auditions for parts in Broadway shows. Not that he expects to get anything big. Maybe he could get a small part one of these days. He still hasn't as of the time the book opens. But it's 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 a dream that is not out of reach for him. Because he is talented. He's in the right place at the right time. And he's got some adults who know that world and are are there to help him start a career in it if that's what he wants. Yeah. And in some ways the fact that there is these multiple elements and groups already established that he is moving between is important to that initial strain and that initial slice of life stress for this kid with talent for whom his father is a painter and but makes his living doing comic book art and always just came across as it seems to just be stressed about his own creative process he, he's he's the, the, he's definitely got the ah uh, flashes of brilliance kind of ah uh, cycle that you can see in that established in the book, but that means that there's this tension going on with his father. We've got the very very formal classical voice instructor who's going for the Broadway and has this affectation, which is I just immediately put him in this category of you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, he wants like, to be a, a British impresario, don't you know? 
And uh, the narration from this character, it's first-person narrative, the narration from this point of view of all these dead-on, devastating descriptions of all these characters. It's great. Meanwhile, his guitar teacher is this big, intimidating man who is a little too friendly and pushing to uh, our kid to, you know, oh, you're good at the guitar stuff. You should do the rock and roll. You should, yeah. you should get into this more. He's kind of a combination beatnik wheeler dealer kind of guy runs this little music store and is is also teaching george how to play guitar and and selling him a guitar on installments and and there is one important final character in this this little setup that's the teddy bear that's right the teddy bear very important who was more of a character in some ways than i expected if not yeah. if not in having a personality in that he was a a segment of George's character right. that is separate and can be in a different location than George at the same time kind of it this is not a book in which like the teddy bear is animated and we hear the teddy bear speak the teddy bear is just a stuffed animal it's George's connection to this teddy bear and what this teddy bear means to George's life that that makes it a part of who George is. Absolutely. So you're right about that. As so, he, some people have a cigarette habit. I've got a teddy bear habit. And George sees himself. I mean, the subtitle of the book, I think, is How I Became a Winner. Oh, that's not on my copy. Oh, I think I've, I've read that somewhere. I'll, I'll double check on that. I mean, what I've got here that we will get is a physical copy of it from a a publishing in... Oh, when was this one printed? I don't know. I had to. I had to look online to find a copy. Apparently, insanely, sadly, there are no physical copies currently in print. So you've got to find used copies. Well, this is surprisingly copyright cover illustration of two thousand and one. Okay, so that's a relatively recent reprint of it. relatively recent. Oh, not and, the edition that I read, of course, yeah. in the seventies. Oh, and I want to make a shout out to Kevin Williams. You have excellent handwriting when you wrote this book belongs to Kevin Williams in this used copy we've got here. Thank you, Kevin. I hope you enjoyed this book as as, uh, as much as I did when I read it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I had to find a used copy online and get, get you that. It's in good condition. Kevin's autograph notwithstanding, so that's awesome. It's not too long of a book, but it's... No, it's it's a... a, a I, I wouldn't know the word count, but it's a reasonably sized middle grade novel. Yeah. But... It struck me that I saw an edition where the subtitle was How I Became a Winner, because George, from the very beginning, tells us that he's a loser. That's how he sees himself, because he feels like he keeps getting opportunities, and then he blows them because he gets nervous, he panics, he freaks out, and the only thing that can sometimes keep him from... losing his cool and getting nervous is this teddy bear knowing the teddy bear is near being able to see or touch the teddy bear lets him focus on what he's supposed to be doing and he can he can actually live up to his potential and use his talents the teddy bear has to be with him he has to be able to see it and know it's there for him to not freak out right and of course this is increasingly awkward or a 12-year-old about to be 13 trying to make it in theater. And he can't have this teddy bear around all the time because 
in addition to needing this teddy bear, he certainly can't let anybody else in the world know that he needs this teddy bear. Of course Because this would be tremendously embarrassing. Yeah, this, this, just, this just can't be known. This is, this is the secret that must be held. If he were older, if he were established, it would be a cool eccentricity for an artist. As a, a 12-year-old who is as self-conscious as every 12-year-old is, that would be doom for the world to know that he had a teddy bear habit. Yeah. He is almost self-conscious about being self-conscious in this weird, self-fulfilling, self-defeating way in that sense at the beginning. Yeah, he's very self-aware about how self-conscious he is about things. Absolutely. And- That's where I said he has this, this um, remarkable amount of snark. His, his commentary and observation about the world around him has this edge to it the entire time, and that turns on himself plenty yes it's not like he thinks he's great and he's snarky about the rest of the world he is as hard on himself as he is on anybody and much more most of the time mm-hmm. but he's still he's not a character who's doom and gloom he's still a character who gets up and does things and he as much as he says he's a loser i don't know that he really sees himself in the way that he tells us he sees himself it's almost like he keeps repeating it because he doesn't believe himself. Right. Or he doesn't want to get too full of himself, so he puts himself down more. Although, realistically, he does get these opportunities and they never pan out. Some of that is just the odds, and some of that is his tendency to panic. But he's, a very, he was, he's talented, he's very smart, he's not always wise, of course, he's 12 years old. But he's a fascinating character to follow through this whole book. He's quick thinking. A lot of the times when there's that flash of brilliance with his father, his father has had a new idea and is pushing that, and one last piece isn't clicking. And some offhanded comment that he that our main character makes is the thing that either completes the thought for his father or adds that little bit, because he's just processed through the information that quickly. And... <laughs> There's this there's this weird pattern. It pops up like three times of this same sort of thing with this comic book stuff that his father's working on. And it's like, oh, I've got, I've got this idea. We're going to do this. Oh, so he can then do that. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. We'll do that. <laughs> yeah, I think the the way they portray the relationship with his father is great because you can see that they are alike in the way that fathers and sons can be alike. Oh, yeah. And... And he, uh, George, describes his father and explains how he's an artist. He's an action painter, so he paints these abstract paintings by throwing, literally throwing paint at a canvas with a spoon. But he pays the bills by writing comics uh, like Amorpho Man and Garbage Man. <laughs> and oh, and is, George, in explaining this to us, the reader, is saying, you would think that him being an artist and all this would make him kind of cool, but no, he's just another old man. He's just another dad. Like anybody's old man. When compared to the fact that later we see George, who will sometimes be hyper-focused on a situation and sometimes be excited about the potential that his music career might have, and sometimes is hanging out with his friends in a very nothing-to-do manner, there's a parallel here. Right. And that, that kind of is shown through the story without ever pointing out directly, and I like that. And the other thing we learn in the first chapter or two about George's family is that his mom died when he was just a baby. Mm -hmm. And we learn that he's had this teddy bear 
for literally as long as he's been alive, because his dad got it for him the day he was born. And it always seemed to me there's a connection between the mom who he is accustomed to being missing from his life because he never knew her, and this teddy bear, and why it is so important to him. Oh, yeah. This is a... This is an attachment out of loss in some sense. Right. It, he, he recognizes that there's something missing from his life that he's never had, and that's connected somehow to this teddy bear and why it is so important to him. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's part of why it's interesting as the story goes, because how he refers to the bear, how he goes about thinking about it, because we're seeing this from so much inside his head, changes verbiage and descriptor wise the entire time and the bear is never anything really to him other than an inanimate object in that he never really talks to it does he no and oh, it, it certainly never talks to him the clearest interaction is this hitting the bear against the wall so it bounces off the wall to his bed and then hugging the bear because when he thinks when he knows no one's looking he's sorry for doing that to the bear Again, he's self-aware enough to know that this is just a stuffed animal, but he still relates to it in that way. Mm-hmm. It's about it defines him because of how he treats it. But it, it become I, I'm I'm pulling this just from memory instead of trying to pull page numbers or something. But it goes from being the teddy bear to being my teddy bear to being the bear, and then he's referring to it later on as. You know, he's he's filling in it as part of other stories in a way that is detached a level in order for the sake of what he's saying to other people about it. But that also says that he's willing to call it this other thing in those situations because his priorities and his thoughts about it have shifted. And I'm trying I'm trying to work around here, but it, to not spoil what goes on, but how he approaches it definitely changes over the course of these events. And we see that because it's all from his perspective. It never changes completely, but we see that there are many different ways in which he relates to this teddy bear, depending on what else is going on. And I think we can talk a bit about how, what, what, what major plot elements develop early on in the book that then play out into the story. Very early on, George meets through Wigsy, this producer, who's putting together a package for a TV variety show, TV special. And he's looking to cast a group of kids to put together a pop group, kind of a Beatles Jr. sort of thing. So one of the the storylines is, is he going to be able to audition and get this part to a chance to be on TV? Even though it's a long shot, and even though his dad hates rock and roll. And TV. And hates TV. So here he is wanting to play rock and roll on TV. <laughs> and his dad doesn't like TV so much they do not have one and hates rock and roll. And also early on in the book, we start seeing and he starts noticing newspaper headlines about this jewel heist at a museum or, or I think it was at a museum. Yes. And of course, these headlines that we see so early on become part of the plot, mm-hmm. which is how it turns into a mystery and a thriller, really. Oh, yeah. At the end of it. And so we've got a kid auditioning for a TV special with his teddy bear. 
stuffed inside his guitar <laughs> to hide it because he needs to know it's there, but he can't let anyone see it. So that's an example of how the length that he has to go to to accommodate this life he wants to lead and this little piece of baggage he can't get rid of, this teddy bear. And it's also interesting how the book gives us a chance to see this world of theater and of TV production and all this stuff. And I'm sure Collier did a lot of research to, to, to talk to people about what this is like. And we really get a chance to see inside this world from the point of view of this kid who's suddenly surrounded by it. Yeah, this is, this is a book for kids that directly complains about the rewrite and repractice schedule of TV production. This is a thing that has a couple of pages where celebrities are complained about because of infighting about how much time they get in a special. There's a lot of inside baseball in a weird way in terms of getting to see this all made and with a character already established to have this slightly harsh on everything but not 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 without understandably being so and without a, a limit, but with that little bit of a critique eye being put in this situation, it, I was surprised and delighted to see how it was, <laughs> how everything was, had a, at least a small swing taken at it. Right. And I wouldn't say that George is ever mean spirited, or maybe the few instances he is, he kind of recognizes it and is sorry a moment later. But yeah, he has this. This, this this critical eye of this showbiz industry, but he discusses it in the same way that he co- he would complain about a math teacher who gives stupid quizzes and things. It's just it's just part of his world. It's a new and interesting part of his world. But he's not totally starstruck because he's on a TV set and he's got there are some celebrities around. He doesn't really necessarily know who the celebrities are because they don't have a TV in his house, but. He it's just he just rolls with it and he observes it and relates to it the same way he does most of the rest of his life. And and he'll observe himself about the fact that it's, you know, wow. Part of me doesn't want to have to go on stage because I'll be nervous. I'm going to mess this up. It'll be awful. And part of me is a little bit uh, is a little bit upset that I wish one of these other kids would, you know, sprain their ankle or come down with the two-day flu <laughs> so that I wind up on this thing because right. I don't want to just be an extra. Kind of, uh-huh. he's, he's aware enough to note that he's thinking that, aware enough to not quite be happy that that's his first thought or one of his thoughts, and aware enough to be nervous of the result if he did make it. And he's perfectly honest about the fact that yeah, he would love to be on TV, and one of the cool things about that is you can kind of slouch around school and, and act cool and, and name drop and about, you know, oh yeah, Ringo stopped by the other day and we were talking about something. And yet that's not, he's not obsessed with it. It's not like this is the be-all and end-all. Le- learning how to play guitar better and hanging out with his friends and, and all this stuff is is just as important to him. So it's interesting to see this 12-year-old's commentary on the TV business. And the kind of balanced view he has of it in terms of what it means for him. And that's one of those interesting things. This is a a kid's book where he goes to school. It's during the school year, but it never is at school, really. No, we this don't. Is, yeah. a, a, the story would have those little like dragnet 
audio drops of a time and date <laughs> after he gets off of school to go do other stuff each time because it's that that block of his morning and beginning of afternoon is just not a part of what's going on here so it's oh yeah i went to school i came back and then things happened again yeah it's really crisply written in that way that we only we only get what george i.e. the writer sees as something interesting and and worthwhile to the story and that's one thing i couldn't tell if it there are parts that were definitely that definitely felt written time-wise like it's being it's happening right then but some of it felt like it was being written of something that had happened to him it's there were there were sections where i couldn't quite tell how much of this is supposed to be thinking during the moment and how much of it's supposed to be thinking after the moment well it's all written in past tense okay yeah but and this is part of the thriller aspect of it when the, the pace gets very intense and there's a lot of action. There are times when he is describing what he was thinking in the moment, but still in this past tense narrative. So you're right. Sometimes he's saying, well, at the time, all I thought was such and such. So that you are getting in the instant of the action. But the whole story is told from some indeterminate time in the not-too-distant future from when the story takes place. Yeah, how close that past to the past tense is, like, what really got me, because I, I couldn't tell if it's a a chapter-by-chapter past, or if it's it's the whole story past tense at times, with the way it was run. But it, it kept my interest in that. Yeah, it's, it's very well-paced, it's very uh, very crisp in that way. Yeah, as you say, it's not a long book, it's, it's a few hours of reading, but it is, and no matter what age you are, if you haven't read this book, get it. Uh, oh, and, and I don't want to jump ahead to our, our later questions, but it is sufficiently well-written that it'll, it'll reward any reading, or rereading, as I found out. In addition to the pacing and the plot, though we mentioned it a little bit, there is a lot of attention paid to the characters, and this book can portray and, and describe a absolutely real and you can see him standing in front of you kind of character with just a little bit of description it's really a gift that collier's got so that in addition to the the major characters who we see a lot of like like george of course and his dad and his friend stanky from school and wigsy we also get people like you're saying ian his uh, his voice teacher and then there's the guy he doesn't meet until later damon damon the button king Oh, Damon Damon. We get these little descriptions of, of Damon Damon, and he's such a real character. Apart from George and Wigsy, Damon Damon is probably the character I most vividly remembered from having read this decades ago before I came back into the book. Damon Damon kept on reading to me like a potential version of what George will become. Maybe. There, there's, a little, there's a little bit of a don't make the same mistakes I did. In some of his bits, maybe, or or I, I oh, couldn't that's, tell. That's interesting. Maybe I was just maybe it was the the initial uncertainty that our character has towards him on some things that came through there. Damon Damon is the like the music coordinator for this TV special, so George winds up kind of reporting to him for a while. But but once he's calming down the other, he's calming down the kids by whispering to them 
little secrets and little rumors about all the other stars there that are throw that are getting angry about something. <laughs> yeah, he's sharing showbiz gossip. He's with sharing the kids. showbiz gossip with the kids. There's something about that that's so mirrored the same sort of critique we were seeing our main character give. I guess when he first yeah. introduced these, that I just immediately related them. I, I never thought of that, but yeah, there is something there. It's it's I guess kind of a showbiz personality that George has already already developed to some extent, and Damon Damon has in full bloom. The character that stood out to me the most at times was Mr. Smith Jones, the Smith Jones. Oh, the voice teacher. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's an interesting character. He's got his own agenda because if he can get one of his kids in a Broadway show or on TV, of course, that's great advertising for him as a teacher. So he's all for that. And it was fun to see someone writing a a heavier or affected accent in that sense. Right. Don't you know? It's a good job, too. He doesn't overdo it so that it's hard to read, but he has a few of those little verbal affectations that come through in the dialogue to make it clear who's talking and, and what kind of a person this is. It's just good writing, old boy, don't you know? <laughs> <laughs> so between George and the the way that the uh, all the characters are portrayed and the way the places are portrayed, it's just everything is so concrete, it seemed to me, that the plot that unfolds really pulls you forward because there's such a real context for it. It is a, a realistic story in that sense. But the any of the the unrealistic extra drama excitement to it, it's hard to tell how much of that is writing and how much of that is a kid's perspective in that sense. And that's excellently done. Right. And being able to capture that kid's perspective is brilliant writing. Mm-hmm. And I, is, this is, is going to be a shock to you, I know, Ian, that this book was very influential on me when I read this. I could hear some of the modern voice, especially in the things I've, I've read you writing, in, in terms of your writing, mm-hmm. I could hear some of the voice of this having been influenced to you, just because of the, the internal monologue aspect and some <laughs> of that coming through, and I... I I I loved this for that reason in that sense, and I once again I don't want to get into our fi- final things, but but yeah. So when, I, when when he was doing his description bits, I was like, oh hey, I I've I've heard just that slight background <laughs> of this in the past in a delightful way. Yeah, I don't think there's any. Um, I don't think it's just a coincidence that not long after reading this, I kind of became a theater kid and was a, a theater and musical kid all through high school and halfway through college and was really saw um, performing arts as just this fun and interesting and exciting thing to do, but also world to inhabit until other things became just as interesting to me. This book among what uh, was one of a few books that I could point to from that time in my life when I was really a kid that led me to start reading and eventually writing crime fiction. So there's definitely a lot that I could point to this specific book to say, you know, this was the beginning of a path that I'm still on today, or at least I I traveled for a while and had a big influence on me. For our first book on the IMMP, this is an excellent thing for that reason alone. 
So, and that's why, as soon as I remembered it, again, I'm not sure why I remembered it, I wanted to share this book with you and see what you thought of it. it again, I read it when I was younger and when it was more contemporary, and it had a huge influence on me at the time. So does that mean we should lead into our, our questions, for or our final questions for this? Yeah, I suppose so. It's probably time for final judgment, and I think we need to modify those a bit. It's absolutely going to have to be shifted, because this is a different medium, and that means it has different interaction. Right, different possibilities for it. For TV shows, we have binge or no binge. Should we go ahead and watch this or not? For this, it's not a question of binge, but I think it's to read or not to read. Do you recommend that people read this? Yeah, and I'm going to say read it. I'm going to say read it just because if, if you're not, if you don't have a lot of time, it's not that big. It's not going to take you too long. I got distracted with tons of other projects and all other stuff and i still whenever i came back to it and because i read it in like three sessions or so Mm -hmm. sitting in and it was just a fun little time each breaking up into chunks like that amongst everything else didn't take me that long overall and it was enjoyable all the way through yeah i mean this will take it's again it's a middle grade novel if you would if you have time to watch any of the movies or binge any of the tv shows we recommend you've definitely got time to read this and I agree. I would. I am so glad that I thought about this book. I'm so glad that I found it again, and that I was able to read it and have and ask you to read it. Anybody who has, has any interest in the kind of things that we've talked about, and maybe if you're not sure, you do. Go ahead and read this because it is just a fun experience and a surprising amount to think about. In addition to being a fun experience, and as something to note, we did find that there is an audiobook version. So. If you want to listen to it, it's available as that. Personally, the little bit I've heard of it, it it got some of the energy right, but there is a different energy to sitting down and reading the book because of being it. Uh, there always is to being able to read a book because you get to assign and do more of the the casting direction in in your own head to that extent. So that's an option for the people who want to do that for time, but. Be aware, I always say with audiobooks, as to what that might add or take away from a story when you hear it. That's a great point. The The audiobook, it was a fine reading. It wasn't that much of a performance, though. And in my reading of the book, there was so much attitude in every single line. So much character, line after line, and you could hear... The fear and the nervousness and the snark and everything in this 12-year-old protagonist in every line of, of, uh, of narrative, let alone dialogue. And there's something of that texture missing from the audiobook. Again, it's, it's a totally a serviceable audiobook. It's probably read the way it's read, partly to make it clearly understandable to the target audience for this book, which is, which is pretty young. But so it's it's worth knowing it's out there. But I enjoyed reading the book more than the audiobook. And I there are a lot of audiobooks where I uh, I, I prefer the audiobook as my first exposure to the 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 text itself. So I think we're agreed that as far as to read or not to read, definitely read. Yeah. The question then is how we modify our our other options here, right? Usually, for for, uh, TV shows and sometimes movies, it is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. 
you can't really revive a book in that sense or reboot a book. No, you can continue. You can you can add on to it, but not every book even leaves you an ending where you can add on more story. So, add is maybe one option. Okay. But one thing about books is that, and all media, is that it can move from one type to another. And books especially have a long history with audiovisual media of getting adapted. Yes. So we've got add, we've got adapt. And then there's the last thing I think we could add, we could put to a book here, which is you've got the book in your hand. You're not doing anything else with it. You archive it. Right. I'm it, keeping our alliteration system here. It stays think, in the it stays in the library, but you don't need to do anything else to it. You can go back and read it when you want, but there's nothing else to do to it. Yeah, so keeping our alliteration, I think we've got add, adapt, or archive. I like it. So, for our first book on the IWMP, The Teddy Bear Habit by James Lincoln Collier, add, adapt, or archive. What do you think, Ian? I know that add is not an option here. I'm I'm taking that off the list for myself because it it ends well and in some ways the uncertainty of how it ends of 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 not how it ends but of how things will continue for him is I think part of how it does end. And His life is thing. still uh, uh an open open uh an open road a uh, story yet to be told at the end of this. Yeah. And so I don't think it needs more. So Taking the first off, and I'm uncertain from there. In some ways, an adaptation of this would be great because there's just a lot of fun story here, and it would be a a fun small story for an episode of something, or broken up a little into a, a very small mini series. But you'd have to shift it; it wouldn't stay with its target audience in the same way. Or it would have to double down on some of the parts of the atmosphere that were were heavy in order to to make it interesting in a, a video medium. So I think it's archive. Really? I think it is. As much as an ad- adaptation could be fun and I can picture how that would go, I'm not sure an adaptation... I mean adaptations always lose something they always are a different thing than the original source material they are transformative by nature you are transforming it from one medium with one set of interaction with one set of options into another and books always have the issue of the fact that the mental image is completely constructed by the reader so when converted to something that has external forces of a specific actor playing a part or of a set giving you an idea of a physical space and distance between uh, people and events that can change because it conflicts with what the reader saw. But I'm looking at this and saying, if so much of this book is the in the head of our main character perspective, I'm uncertain how well an adaptation could do so because it has to be looking at him from a third person perspective and narration over that will give us the things he's thinking but it's not going to be through his eyes in the same way and so there might be more lost in an adaptation than I'm willing to let be cut from this story and 
I think that means that I, I say archive just because it's a story that might not do as well in an adaptation. That's very interesting. Uh, now, there's one thing about the choices that we're posing for books in this way, and that they're not mutually exclusive. You can do more than one of these. So starting with Adapt, I really would be interested in seeing an adaptation of this. And I think there was, it was optioned and there were, was some pre-production about like a TV movie or maybe it was a, a, a theatrical movie or something based on this. And don't think it ever got made, but I, it had like, I think George Carlin was attached probably to play Wigsy. Oh my goodness. And that's, that, that's my guess. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure he was involved. I don't know about that production that didn't ever quite got off the ground, but I could see a really good adaptation made of this today. I would want it to be set in the time when this was set, because that was so important, I think, to the story. I'd want it to be a period piece about Greenwich Village in the 60s. Oh, yeah. But I could see this saga, this thriller, mystery, showbiz saga with a kid as as the protagonist i could and i could think of off the top of my head some people who could do a really interesting job with this if they got involved i would love to see lin manuel miranda get involved in this in some way because that's the kind of sensibility that i see in showbiz right now that could bring a, an interesting and loving hand to adapting this okay the moment you said that i i can see it a little bit more because Someone with that sort of showbiz, uh, someone with that theater inside could could definitely like that theater background could definitely work with it in that sense because they would be using it in part for its commentary on that group and where that got started in with the thing in the sixties. Yeah, it would have to be somebody who really loved the book, loved the world it's set in, and yet was still aware enough to recognize its foibles and its its weirdness. And yeah, I, I can definitely see an adaptation. Maybe I'm just not sure if I I want it to get adapted. You don't want to okay. risk a bad adaptation? I don't adaptation. want to risk an, a bad adaptation, yeah. but there's definitely promise for a good one. Yeah, especially things aimed at kids. If somebody looked at this and decided, oh, we've got this book for 11-year-olds, let's adapt it into a movie for 11-year-olds. It could be really, really terrible. Oh yeah, there, there, there are. There's a couple of excellent, uh, you know, faces on that die that give you something wonderful, but it's just a few too many faces that say you lose. You don't 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 want to roll those dice. Huh? I don't want to roll those dice. Yeah. So, I I am not desperate for this to be turned into a movie or or TV series or a TV in a series a TV movie or something. I'm not desperate for that, but I'd be really, really interested if the right people got involved to do it. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm with you on that. So I wouldn't just say, archive, that's the best and only thing to do with it. I would say, yeah, I'm open to the idea of adapting it. I'm also open to the idea of add. Okay, what? Because I'm holding out on you. Oh, no. There is a sequel. No, you're kidding me. James Lincoln Collier wrote another book about George Stable called Rich and Famous. Oh, goodness. They, he actually did add? It's another book. I, I don't know that it, it wasn't new to me, so it didn't 
hit me in the same way that the teddy bear habit did, but I remember reading it as soon as I could get my hands on it back then, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was another George Stable's adventures in show business and ancillary thriller material. Oh my goodness. The, uh, I am I am actually comp- This was completely unknown to me and <laughs> I am so curveballed right now. I don't know what to say because that is the last thing I would have ever expected. When you started to tell me that someone had licensed had taken the rights and considered doing pre-production on this, I was like, "Okay, that's a surprise. That's the big surprise." No, what? <laughs> I was I was torn whether I should tell you this when we were we try to talk about these things as little as we can before we record. <laughs> uh we want to save all of our comments for the podcast, but I was still torn about whether I should let you know about this sequel before we started recording, but I decided no, I'm going to spring this on him if he doesn't know it already. Oh my goodness, there is a sequel. Are we going to have to do a we kept reading on this? I think we might. We might, because oh I am um, definitely going to read Rich and Famous. Now that I've reread The Teddy Bear Habit, I'm going to have to go back and reread Rich and Famous, just because it was so much fun. Yeah. If, if it has anywhere even half of the voice this does, it's going to be a fun read, even if I don't look at it as favorably in the end, just because that's a fun voice to read through. It is, and that's the, the best part of it, is just you get to visit with these characters again. And if I've got if I've got a whole another book, I might actually pull out my psych textbooks and <laughs> do a, a deeper dive into what's going on with the kid for a bit. Oh yeah, but that that was interesting. So I'm glad you liked the book, and uh, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. And I think that this proves that the the IWMP, uh, as much as we're still going to keep talking about TV and movies, it's open to a lot more than that because. You know, again, this is about me subjecting you to what was important to me as a kid, and I was influenced by a lot more than just TV and movies. So, we're off to a good start now with with other media. We are proudly the Intermillennia Media Project, and that that is a, a wide net because you are influenced by a lot of stuff. Everyone is influenced by a lot of stuff, and... You cannot specifically look at one without acknowledging the others. And even if we wind up with a lot of TV and movies in this, that doesn't mean that they are the only things. And I'm glad we've kept that open. Yep. And there's a lot more to come. And, you know, it's interesting. TV has for so long was regarded as this ephemeral medium. It was trendy and it was here and then it was gone and it wasn't lasting. It was so much more difficult for me to find a copy of this book to give you than it's been to find any of the TV shows we've read, we, we've watched. In some ways, that fear of a, of the the video and the audio being ephemeral, I think, has led to more people archiving it and more people putting some of the effort into preserving it. In some ways, yeah. Then some of these other books and there's other pieces that might have been a little bit more lost because. They were assumed to stick around. Right. So the effort wasn't put in. Yep. And we also have Kevin Williams to thank. Uh, Shout out one more time for Kevin. Thank you. (laughs) So we'll be back again soon with, uh, with more talk about some other piece of media, maybe TV, maybe movies, maybe more books. We will see. And if you want to reach us, you can reach the podcast 
at immproject.com. Uh, you can find all of our old episodes there, and you can also find a contact page where you can reach us. You can also find the uh, the podcast on Twitter at immpcast. And Ian, where can people find you? I'm at most places as itemcrafting, either itemcrafting.com, Twitter as at itemcrafting, or even Instagram as itemcrafting. I admire your consistency there. Yes. I'm a little bit less consistent. You can find me on Twitter at by Matthew Porter, or you can find me at MatthewFPorter.com, and that'll link you to anything else I'm doing. So, like I said, we'll be back soon. And remember, go find something new to read. <laughs>